0: So with your permission, I'm going to read Sermon 17. Ego elegi vos de mundo. Those words, which I have quoted in Latin, are read today in the Holy Gospel for the feast of a saint, Barnabas by name, who is commonly referred to in the Scriptures as being an apostle. And our Lord says, I have chosen you, I have selected you from all the world, picked you out from the entire world and from all created things, that you should bring forth much fruit and that your fruit should remain. For it is very delightful to bring forth fruit and for the fruit to remain. And the fruit does remain to him who dwells in love. At the end of this gospel, our Lord says, Love one another as I have ever loved you, and as my Father eternally loved me. So I have loved you. Keep my commandments, then you will remain in my love. All God's commandments come from love and from the goodness of his nature. For if they did not come from love, there would not be God's commandments. For God's commandment is the goodness of his nature. And his nature is his goodness in his commandment. Now, whoever dwells in the goodness of his nature dwells in God's love. But love is without a why. If I had a friend and loved him for the benefits received, and because of getting my own way, I should not be loving my friend but myself. I ought to love my friend for his own goodness for his virtues and all that he is in himself. Only then would I love my friend aright, if I loved him as I have said. It is just the same with the man abiding in God's love, seeking not his own in God, or himself, or in anything, but loving God solely for his goodness and for the goodness of his nature, and for all that he is in himself. That is genuine love. Love of virtue is a flower, an ornament, the mother of all virtue, of all perfection, of all blessedness, for it is God. For God is the fruit of the virtues, God begets all virtues and is a fruit of the virtues, and it is this fruit that remains to man. A man who should work for the fruit would rejoice greatly if the fruit remained with him. If a man had a vineyard or a field and made it over to his servant to till, letting him keep the produce at the same time giving him all that was necessary, the servant would be very pleased to have the fruits at no expense. Thus, too, a man rejoices who dwells with the fruit of virtue. For he has no worries or vexations because he has relinquished himself and all things. Now our Lord says, Whoever abandons anything for me, and for my name's sake, I will return it to him a hundredfold, with eternal life to boot. But if you give it up for the sake of that hundredfold, and for eternal life, you've given up nothing. (sighs) Even if you give it up for a thousandfold reward, you're giving up nothing. Give up yourself. Altogether, give up self. And then you've really given up. A man once came up to me, it was not that long ago, and told me he had given up a great deal of property and goods in order that he might save his soul. Then I thought, alas, how little and paltry are the things you've given up? It's blindness and folly as long as you care a jot for what you have given up. But if you've given up self, then you have really given up. The man who has resigned himself is so purified that the world will have none of him. I said here once, it was not long ago, he who is devoted to justice taken up by justice seized of justice becomes one with justice I once wrote in my book the just man serves neither God nor creatures for he is free and the closer he is to justice the closer he is to freedom and the more he is freedom itself Whatever is created is not free. So long as there is anything at all above me, that's not God. That oppresses me, however small it might be or whatever its nature, even though it were reason or love. As long as this is something created and not God himself, it oppresses me for it is not free. unjust man is the servant of truth, whether he likes it or not, and he serves the world and its creatures and is a bondman of sin. I once thought, it wasn't long ago, that I'm a man is something other men share with me. That I see and hear and eat and drink. That's the same as with cattle but that I am, that belongs to no man but myself. Not to a man, not to an angel, not even to God, except insofar as I am one with him. It is one purity and one unity. All God works, he puts into the one that is like himself. God gives equally to all things, though their works are unequal, yet they tend in their operation to reproduce themselves. Nature wrought in my father the work of nature. Nature's intention was that I too should be a father as he was. He performs all this work for the sake of his own likeness and his own image so that his work shall be himself. The intention is always the man. But when nature is shifted or hindered, so as not to operate with full power, the result is woman. And when nature ceases in her operation, God begins to work and create. For without women, there would be no men. When the child is conceived in the mother's womb, it has image, form, and material being. That is the work of nature. That lasts for 40 days and nights. And on the 40th day, God creates the soul in less than an instant, so that the soul is form and life for the body. Now ends the work of nature, with all that nature can contrive in form, image, and material being. The work of nature goes out altogether. And as nature's activity withdraws, it is fully replaced in the rational soul. This is now a work of nature and a creation of God. In created things, I've said before, there is no truth. There is something that transcends the created being of the soul. Not in contact with created things which are nothing. Not even an angel has it. Though he has a clear being that is pure and extensive, even that does not touch it. It is akin to the nature of deity. It is one in itself, and has naught in common with anything. It's a stumbling block to many a learned cleric. It is a strange and desert place and is rather nameless than possessed of a name. And is more unknown it, than it is known. If you could naught yourself for an instant, indeed I said less than an instant, you would possess all that this is in itself. But as long as you mind yourself or anything at all, You know no more of God than my mouth knows of color or my eye of taste. So little do you know or discern what God is. Now, Plato, that great priest, begins to speak and would discourse on weighty matters. He speaks of something pure that is not in the world, It is neither in the world nor out of the world, neither in time nor in eternity, having neither inside nor outside. Out of this God, the eternal Father, derives the plenitude and depth of all his deity. This he bears here, this he bears here in in his eternal. Sorry, guys. This he bears here in his only begotten son, so that we are that very son. And his birth is his indwelling, and his indwelling is his birth. It remains ever the one that continually wells up in itself. Ego, the word I, is proper to none but God in his oneness. Vos, the word means you, that you are one in unity, so that ego and vos, I and you, stand for unity. That we may be this same unity and remain this unity, may God help us. Amen. So some thoughts on Sermon 17. This sermon really looks at the question of how we can most fruitfully and productively live. Firstly, with that opening gospel quotation, he shows us that life isn't accidental. He tells us that we have each chosen from all the world. Choice implies worth, attention honor even. We all get a little bit excited even in those misleading emails and letters that try to convince us that you, yes you, have been chosen for a special prize. You'll surely treat yourself and those around you better for believing that you have something vital and unique to offer the world. And that doing so isn't cold duty, but the proper joy of being. Though Eckhart calls us later in the sermon to abandon all created things, our ideas about ourselves or selfhood included. In another sermon he does tell us we should live as if dead. But he doesn't mean us to understand that as a passive or solitary, solipsistic focus, the sort of self-denial as we were talking about. That is more about the self. nor does he intend that we should nurture that existential despair, which we've come to view, in which we've come to view ourselves as a purposeless collection of cells. Life has value, and its value is enhanced. It's a life most fully and properly lived when it is a flourishing one. Its fruiting is measured by its participation in love for each other, for the world itself, and also for what we might call God. We might also call him love. So the universe, as Eckhart envisages it, is one shaped by and for love, it's important for us to love correctly. To explain what such love might look like, Eckhart begins with a rather tortuous piece of reasoning, necessary because of a certain distaste I suspect he'll have felt with that gospel quotation he'd lumbered himself with passage from John, the gospel, says that provided we obey the commandments, we will remain in God's love. This is exactly the sort of rule-based, litigious, bargaining sort of attitude that we see resisted throughout Eckhart's writings. That is living for a why, prompted, that is, by self-interest we've estimated that it's to our our advantage to do so. That's the polar opposite of detachment, which is how Eckhart approaches love. The sort of generous love that loves empathically, altruistically, with true and full understanding of the other. So how does he make sense of it? Eckhart shows that because anything that comes from God, who is all things, shares in some of his nature, because he is its origin, its source, and because God is love, so everything, he says, comes from love. But Eckhart's understanding of comes from is a radical one. If I were to screw this piece of paper up and throw it at any one of you, you would say it had come from me. It would be easy to do so, after all. You can readily distinguish me in any dozen ways. And that's because I am a creature. And what distinguishes creatures is multiplicity and particularity. You would easily be able to see where my hand and the paper ended and began. And though, if my aim were accurate enough to hit one of you, a physicist would be able to show how some of my energy, the energy that I myself received from outside myself in the form of calorific fuel, even though some of that energy might have transferred itself to my target, sufficiently for them to feel it, what you would not say, is that any meaningful part of me, or my nature, had interacted with my target. Or that I was in any sense what I had thrown. It's different with God, or what we use the word God to describe. God is the one. He can only be one. What he pours out is himself what he is and does are indistinguishable. And so his commandments must be one with his nature, must be the whole of his nature, which means they must be goodness and love. And so we don't obey them so that we will be loved. Rather, in obeying them, we are loved and are love. Eckhart's turned the gospel quotation entirely on its head. He does the same thing a little further on when he speaks about the virtues. To love virtue is excellent, but not because it makes you a virtuous person, someone worthy of honor and attention. The only virtue in loving the virtues is that they come from and lead to God. We love correctly only so long as we do not live directed by thoughts about what we might receive. In the way a farmer, as Eckhart describes in a different sermon, loves a cow for the milk and cheese that it supplies. Or like, as he says here, a man may be drawn to a rich and easily imposed on friend. If we love God for the sake of salvation or from a feeling that we should, that we'll be better people, more fulfilled. Whether from fear of punishment or love of bliss, it's equally misled. The way to love him, Eckhart tells us, is purely for his own sake, selflessly, detached. The way to live virtuously is the same, It is free of worries and vexations, Eckhart says, carefree and joyous, but it cannot be embarked on in a spirit of self-denial or self-congratulation. To live and love as Eckhart directs us requires complete and absolute self-abandonment. I've talked a lot today about living detachment, living as if dead, as an an exile to ourself, our body, our humanity. I'm not saying this is easy listening. (laughs) But in Sermon 17, Eckhart gives us a sense of how detachment might feel. It's a freedom so absolute that we literally cannot imagine it. For the imagination and the mind enter into it, but they can't enter into it at all. The imagination and the mind cannot enter into this at all, so we can't imagine this freedom. The soul has to detach herself from the imagination, from the mind, even from love, as much as from the more obvious things we might feel we need to be less attached to like money or self-will. Detachment, living as if dead. This is emphatically not entombing ourselves in any kind of literal or even metaphorical way. We call Eckhart's style of theology, the way of negation. And coupling with the idea of detaching yourself from everything, even love, it would be easy to imagine a putting up of inner walls, of an abandoning of people who need us, a shackling of ourselves to an idea of goodness. But this would be mistaken. Living detachment is, Eckhart says, freedom itself. It is a frightening freedom. Not like the strange comfort of obedience, in saying to yourself, such and such is what I should do. It's something that animals, who live by bodily senses and wants, Eckhart says, and angels, timeless, fleshless beings who exist only to praise God, are equally far from. They can neither of them be detached. You have to be something to own and have it to consciously let it go. Only humanity, which lives in time, but which has something in it that touches timelessness, can live on the threshold between now and eternity, holding each of them in the palm of its hand, can know that fruiting, dwelling up, the birth of God in the soul. So that the death to self, to solipsism, makes room for a birth into one plenitude. And we join together, as Eckhart says, into one unity. At that point, we become one humanity losing all categorization, and we step out of everything that binds us and into perfect freedom.